Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. Heat is the number one killer when it comes to weather. Storm surge, flooding and other impacts of extreme weather can be deadly. But as the climate changes and the temperature ticks up, sustainability experts are trying to figure out how to adapt to hotter days. According to a recent report from the National Weather Service, Tampa just had its warmest year on record. And today we'll talk with the city of Tampa's Whit Raymer about mitigating the impacts of a warming climate and extreme heat. We'll also hear from Florida Public Radio Emergency Network meteorologist Megan Borowski about the meteorology of a warming climate and why a difference of a few degrees can have a big impact on the weather. And later in the show, a closer look at the controversy surrounding the nomination of six new board members to the new College of Florida Board of Trustees and what that could mean for students and staff of Sarasota's renowned liberal arts college. First, though, here's my conversation with Tampa's Sustainability and Resilience Officer, Whit Raymer. We spoke last year about the challenges of climate change and, in particular, how sea level rise poses a threat to buildings, infrastructure and people in Tampa Bay. But hot weather is also a threat as well. Can you talk a little bit about the risks for Tampa Bay residents when it comes to an increasingly warm environment? Hotter, longer days, not only... um pose health impacts to, to humans, but it also actually has a pretty adverse impact on the environment as well. So uh, on the human side, for folks that work outside and for folks that rely on public transportation, uh, where you might have long intervals between bus stops or for folks with pre-existing health conditions or elderly people, those hot days really can take a toll on the system. Heat is actually the number one killer of climate change impacts. It's not storm surge. It's not uh, getting uh, struck by a, a landslide during an extreme rate event. It's heat. You can see decreased water quality. You know, if you've got hotter water longer, that can fuel that red tide that we've seen. So there really is um, a lot of concern with these hotter, longer days that we see with extreme heat. When you say hotter, longer, I mean, the day isn't longer, but it's hotter for longer. Is that what you mean? Yes. Um, and we've seen some uh, ancillary reports in addition to the one that we're reporting on today from the Union of Concerned Scientists that says, you know, we're expecting to see uh, more and more days over 100 degree heat index and more and more days over the 105 degree heat index in the next 20 to 30 years, um, which is something that we really need to pay attention to. And just to clarify too, I mean, the report from the National Weather Service, I mean, it doesn't on the face of it look like a huge difference. It's 76.4 degrees. That was the average temperature for the Tampa Bay region last year. It's two degrees off normal, but it is part of an upward trend. So it doesn't take much. And if the trend keeps ticking upwards, that must be a concern for all of us, but especially for somebody who is focus day to day on trying to figure out how to cope with the impacts of some of these things? You know, like all climate impacts, um, yes, there is a gradual uptick in heat, 
when averaged out, but uh, he can also work in extremes with climate change. We can have really hot stretches that have negative impacts, not only, like I said, on the human health and environment, but that also means people are running their air conditionings a lot longer, which means that their utility bills are going up, which means their uh, energy burden is ultimately going up. So uh, yes, it might be a degree, a half degree every couple of years, but those gradual increases, they have um, negative impacts on on humans and the environment, and, and they have disproportionate impacts on lower income people and people with pre-existing health conditions. So when you think about, um, and back to sea level rise and sustainability, as we spoke about last year, some of those strategies um, to cope with that include where and how you build, how to use the natural environment to your advantage. How do you look at heat and extreme heat through a sustainability and resilience lens? Sea level rise and extreme heat actually are are related. Um, One of the impacts of extreme heat is is that thermal expansion of the ocean. So extreme heat uh, exacerbates sea level rise. But more specifically to your question, how how do we manage heat through the sustainability lens? And there's a lot of things that um, me and my counterparts across the country and across the world are looking at. It might be uh, as simple as increasing shade canopies, targeted tree plantings. It might be deploying cooling centers. And, and, you know, we've looked at other cities and they've set up these kind of specialized cooling centers. And, they, they, you know, they kind of are hit or miss whether people show up to these on hotter days. But, but I will tell you where people do go. They go and they hang out in, in Walmart. They go and hang out in stores that are air conditioning. So we're constantly trying to retune our, our tactics uh, to help respond to the community's needs uh, and ultimately keep people safe and healthy. And when you talk about shade trees, they're often a luxury that you you find, or you might find a lot of them in wealthier neighborhoods. But when you look at neighborhoods that don't have as much wealth, oftentimes trees are lacking. So how do you how do you make sure that that um, neighborhoods without as much as as many resources do have access to the same kind of amenities, whether it's green space or shade trees, that uh, other areas might have? Right now, the city is working on um, a project with the University of South Florida and the Resilient Cities Catalyst with funding from the National Academies of Science to develop a heat playbook for East Tampa that can ultimately be replicated through uh, all of Tampa and really in many, many communities. It's kind of a juxtaposition because East Tampa actually has a pretty good shade canopy, but they still um, have people that we think uh, would benefit from the lessons that will come through this heat playbook. How does increasing heat impact the kinds of trees you can plant too? Because not everything is going to grow in an increasingly warm environment. So I guess you have to be smart about what you're going to be planting to make sure that it can survive whatever comes down the pike in terms of weather in the next sort of 10, 20, 30 years. Again, it's kind of this this interesting juxtaposition where everyone wants these big shade trees, but but sometimes they also present hazards. They can they can wreak havoc on sidewalks, and as we're trying to increase pedestrian and bike uh, mobility options, uh, there's an issue with with that with the root structures. Uh, oftentimes, now with our uh, um, aggressive tree planting efforts, all of that really takes place in the city right away, and in right away we have competing. Uh, sidewalks, utilities, overhead utilities, and underground utilities. So it's a real challenge to get trees, the right tree, in the right place. Um, And that's what we're continuing to try to work through here at the city. 
What about the challenge of heat stress on the electric grid? Is that something you can do something about at the city level or is it out of your hands? Well, at the city level, you know, we, um, we are certainly supporting efforts to make clean energy a priority with, with uh, our municipal operations and with TECO. Ultimately, uh, yes, hotter days means you're running the electricity uh, more, the air conditioning more, and ultimately that requires more electricity. So uh, how do we make sure that in those peak times, those peak demands, that we've got enough clean energy running to run air conditionings? As we need the air conditionings running more, and, and that means Tico's burning more natural gas, that natural gas is ultimately warming the environment. So it's a bad cycle that we really need to, to break. Christmas or the holiday break saw some unusually cold days. Uh, big fluctuations in temperature, something you have to factor into resiliency planning? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, climate change is a, a situation of extremes. You might have you know nine years of, of intense extreme rain, and then you might have one year of extreme drought. You might have uh, several weeks above average, like we did right before the Christmas break. And then you have a, a cold snap, which ultimately leads to water main breaks and opening of emergency shelters. Um, that, that's the new normal. Uh, that, that, is, that is climate change, is these uh, tales of extreme weather. Speaking of extreme weather events, I wanted to ask you about Hurricane Ian, which caused significant storm surge destruction in the Fort Myers area last year. But what did you learn about the impact of Ian that could be applied to how Tampa Bay prepares for the next big storm? Well, I, I continue to to look at the resilient folks down in, in Fort Myers and applaud them for their recovery efforts so far. Um, you know, I'll say what everyone else has said in Tampa that we 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 missed another big one again. Um, but I think that our planning efforts and our emergency management efforts uh, were really strong during that storm. We had a lot of coastal evacuations, huge, huge um, numbers of of coastal evacuations, um, you know, 70 miles from, from north to south, uh, these evacuation zones, A's and B's. And I think for the most part, people heeded those evacuations. So we got we have to continue to, to hone in on our um, emergency evacuations to make sure we don't get storm fatigue. And we have to continue building houses that are more resilient and frankly, that are elevated because these storm surge events uh, combined with sea level rise are gonna continue to pose threats to houses that are built slab on grade. And so I know folks don't love how the character of neighborhoods can change with these new construction with FEMA's flood maps and the, and the um, flood insurance rates. But when you see your neighbor uh, building a higher house, that is adapting to climate change. Those regulations you know, aren't from the, the, the U.S. government or the city of Tampa. Those are, those are market signals from insurance companies saying, uh, we're not going to insure your property unless you're taking the proper mitigation and reducing risk. What does that look like for bigger buildings like city buildings? Because there's a lot more engineering involved in a, you know, like a city hall or something, right? Yeah, I think what you're going to start seeing is, is, is mixed use. You know, you'll start seeing commercial on the lowest level that can be dry or wet floodproof. That might, what that means is either it's built so water literally doesn't get in or it's built so water intentionally can come in. That might mean tile floors and breakaway sheetrock, but you'll see parking levels on lower floors and then you won't see anything on the lower lower level that can really increase risk to public safety. So cities are going to have to change the way they, they build and they look to uh, adapt to climate change. Um, 
but Tampa's here, um, Ford is here. And I think that we really need to continue to focus on reducing our greenhouse gas emissions to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change, but also start recognizing that we need to build to adapt to the impacts that are already upon us. Right, and that was one of the things we talked about last year, Wit, I mean, the challenges of encouraging more sustainability to curb the worst impacts of climate change, whether it's rising sea or more extreme heat. Has that message changed at all? And are you seeing a shift in how people think about sustainability and how people, whether in government or business or individuals, try to incorporate sustainability into their day-to-day lives? Well, you know, I think um, a couple of things that have changed. I think we've got the, the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act since the last time we talked, which is the largest investment in clean energy that um, we've seen in our lifetime. You know, I, I wasn't alive during the, the passage of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And uh, unfortunately, the Inflation Reduction Act doesn't have a particular exciting name, but it's $500 billion in clean energy investment. So I think that's that's getting consumers engaged and involved in the ways that they can ultimately reduce their carbon footprint by providing those tax incentives for going solar and, and putting heat pumps into their house. So that's that's a, go- a good positive movement. Um, I think that you know we, we continue to see leadership at the federal level and uh, with corporations and, and investments on Wall Street continuing to fund these types of, of, of programs. But there's, there's still more we need to do to kind of break into the public conscious um, with sustainability and resilience messaging. And uh, that, that's, that's a challenge that uh, all of professionals in my field have. Just finally, what, what big projects do you have on, on the go this year? What are your goals for sustainability and resilience in Tampa Bay for 2023? Well, in the city of Tampa, we continue to, to hammer the fundamentals, making sure that we've got water and stormwater infrastructure that is providing a level of service that people in Tampa are used to. Uh, we're continuing to focus on providing uh, alternative mobility options so folks can get around and things other than just their car. Uh, but in, in terms of um, you know my specific goals, definitely getting solar on on top of city buildings and also starting to think about coastal resilience. You know the port is going to be dredging uh, the Tampa Bay Channel uh, in a couple of years, and that's going to present a real opportunity to take that additional sediment. Because uh, they're going from 45 down to 50 feet, so they can get larger ships in here. That's a lot of material that we can ultimately use to build up barrier islands and create new natural habitats to protect our coasts and ultimately provide more uh, marine habitats. So I'm really excited about working on that project too. Is it just a simple matter of pumping it onto the shoreline, or is there a little more to it than that? There's there's some pretty serious engineering. I should also mention that the city will be releasing its first ever climate action and equity plan. Uh, many cities are on version two or three of this. This will be the first time the city's put together a climate action and equity plan. We really worked with uh, a large uh, swath of the community to put those ideas and those recommendations into place. So I'm, I'm really excited to share that here in the next couple of weeks. That was the city of Tampa's sustainability and resilience officer, Whit Raymer. You're listening to Florida Matters. Coming up, we'll talk about the meteorology of hotter days and an update on the controversial picks for the Board of Trustees at New College of Florida. That's when we come back. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about extreme heat and the impact of hotter days on the residents of Tampa Bay. 
For some insights into the meteorology of a warming climate, we talked with Florida Public Media Emergency Network meteorologist Megan Borowski. We spoke via Zoom late last week as a cold front was sweeping across the state. So Tampa had its warmest year on record, and that's according to a report from the National Weather Service. Um, I'm wondering, as a meteorologist, what goes through your mind when you see a report like that? Does that track with what you're seeing as far as the weather forecast that you deliver every day and the longer term trends? Well, it's hard for us, you know, because weather and, and climatology or meteorology and climatology are two um, two different subjects, right? So um, as meteorologists, we're working with weather on a day-to-day basis, whereas climatology is, is looking at data over decades or centuries. So, you know, as we're forecasting from day to day, we'll see, you know, spikes in, in temperatures where it's like, oh, we reached the maximum or, you know, oh, we, we got to a, a local record for low temperatures. But as we go day to day, I know I've been noticing we continue to, to reach or surpass record highs. So I'm on doing this every day for the for the Florida market for the past four years or so. It didn't come too much as a surprise to me. Um, but although when, when you see these records come out, you know, it's it's interesting to want to know more of what exactly were the contributing factors to this record set this year. Sure. And according to some reporting from the Tampa Bay Times about this um, National Weather Service report and data, the Weather Service says the average temperature in Tampa last year, 76.4 degrees, was about two degrees warmer than normal. Um, and they're saying it's part of an upward trend. But just how much of a difference in temperature does it take to see a difference in the weather? Because a couple of degrees doesn't seem on the face of it like a lot. Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at something or even in the, the global discussion of, of climate change, when you do hear a half a degree, one degree, two degrees, it doesn't really resonate too much with you. It doesn't raise too much of an alarm. But you've got to keep in mind that this is over the course of, for the case of the 2022 report from NWS Tampa, it's over the course of a year. So that could have been impacted by several decently sized events of heat waves, or it could be, you know, we're not getting as cold each night. I have to actually look into the daily record or the daily observations that that went into the report itself. But yeah, over the course of of a region like Tampa Bay or over the course of the region of the country or the globe, a temperature change like that can have impacts on lots of, of different aspects of human society. Think about agriculture, think about, you know, changes in precipitation distribution and how that would impact agriculture, um, industry, things of that nature. So, you know, in the whole discussion of climate change, a lot of times you'll hear temperature being used to kind of spur the conversation, but you really got to think about, okay, well, what is the domino effect that's that's happening um, with this change um, in temperature? And if you focus back on the meteorological picture, what are some of the meteorological impacts of a warming trend beside just hotter days? So as we see this global average changing or this regional average changing, we're still going to have hot days and we're still going to have cold days. That's that's not um, something that, that we need to be concerned about. But what we need to think about here is changes in where rain falls, when rain falls, 
as temperatures warm up around the globe, there is a, a school of thought that, that has a lot of academic backing and research backing that storms like tropical cyclones um, could increase in intensity. We'll have more incidences of higher uh, category tropical storms or hurricanes. Um, so we've got to think about that as well, as if we have more frequent strong hurricanes, then there's a greater risk that our area could be impacted by that eyewall coming directly ashore. I mean, we see it this past hurricane season with Ian. If that track were just several miles north, the story would be really different right now for the Tampa Bay area. So of course, if we have more stronger storms, then there's a higher risk that will be impacted by that. So, you know, there, there's a whole litany of potential impacts that we could talk about here with you know, a change in when and where it rains that can impact agriculture, that can impact human industry, maybe flooding in the Tampa Bay metro area, sea level rise. You know, it's a combination of we're changing the global environment and precipitation distributions and temperatures and sea, sea level. And on top of that, we're changing the landscape with our buildings um, and, our, and our infrastructure. So we're, you know, there's a, a multitude of, of impacts that that we could be experiencing localized flooding, coastal flooding, the list goes on and on. Megan, before we let you go, I did want to ask, of course, it's only January, so we've still got a few months before the start of the next hurricane season, but when are we going to have an idea of what could be in store for us for 2023 in the, the storm season? Forecasts come out a couple months in advance of the start. So as we get closer to the spring, um, that's when we'll really be looking at climate indices like uh, the El Nino Southern Oscillation. Once we look at those indices, uh, we'll get a better idea of what could happen. That was Florida Public Radio Emergency Network meteorologist Megan Borowski. Turning now to the controversy that erupted over the nomination of six new board members to the Board of Trustees at New College of Florida in Sarasota. Students, staff and alumni are concerned the conservative appointees could radically change the direction of a school renowned for its progressive mission. WUSF's Kathy Carter has been covering the story and joins us now. So you were at a Sarasota County legislative delegation meeting last Thursday and there were quite a few people protesting the appointments. Who were they and what did they have to say? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Sarasota Legislative Delegation was meeting to hold their listening session to talk about priorities for the region ahead of the state's upcoming session. And a few dozen protesters, uh, parents, alumni, students, and also some Democratic education activists showed up in front of the uh, building where the meeting was held, the Sarasota County Commission Chambers, with signs and, and protesting. The fact that New College of Florida will have some new appointees if they go through based on Governor Ron DeSantis's recent picks, as you mentioned. So, Kathy, what makes New College different from the other public universities in Florida, and what are people worried might happen to it under this revamped Board of Trustees? Well, New College is part of the state university system. It is the smallest school in the Florida's university system. It has about 700 students. Uh, New College of Florida does have a reputation for being the most progressive public college uh, in the state. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is 
part of their mission statement. So a lot of the students chose to go to New College of Florida specifically for that reason. So they are concerned that with conservative appointees, that will go away. In fact, one of the appointees, Christopher Rufo, is uh, a senior fellow at the right-leaning Manhattan Institute. And on Twitter, he said he does want to eliminate diversity, equity, and inclusion policies. He did appear on stage with Governor Ron DeSantis uh, in December 2021 when the governor signed the Stop Woke Act, which prohibits the teaching in schools and workplaces uh, of anyone's race or sex um, being inherently privileged or biased. So students here are worried that it's pretty much going to be the complete opposite of what they intended uh, to go to New College for as far as the curriculum and uh, just the overall atmosphere. Kathy, we're hearing that some students and faculty are a little bit wary of talking to the media. They're worried about what could possibly happen if they speak out. Um, But you did, I, I understand you did uh, get some comments from students. First of all, just what are they? What are the concerns from folks about speaking out, and what did you hear from the uh, students that you did talk to? When the story first broke about these appointments, I did reach out to faculty members and uh, some students, and they were a little concerned about going on record. Of course, faculty, you know, they have families they need to support, and uh, you know, they were concerned about going on record against the governor, who's been very vocal about the way he wants to uh, change the direction uh, of New College. And the gentleman I talked about, Christopher Rufo, is is very active on Twitter, and he is not afraid to call out his opponents. So that could be a couple of the reasons why people were a little sensitive uh, about going on record. But to the students that I, that I did speak to, specifically, their main concerns were having diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, eliminated from the mission statement. It's a small school, but it has a large LGBTQ community, so those students are, are concerned as well that uh, they won't have the services that New College provides currently. Now, Joe Gruters was at the Sarasota County Legislative Delegation meeting last week. The state senator and chair of the Republican Party of Florida had a bit of a different take from those protesters on these board nominations. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, Senator Joe Gruters uh, spoke to some of the demonstrators who did stay hours and hours at this uh, legislative meeting. They were there at 1 o'clock in the afternoon when it began, but they didn't even take up uh, public comment till close to 5 o'clock. So some of these folks had been there for hours. And Senator Joe Gruters basically said that um, the school's board is not a takeover, but a bridge to save New College. And he uh, said that because New College has been going through some financial struggles, low enrollment. Uh, So for years, there's been talk of trying to figure out a way to uh, minimize that. But uh, Joe Gruders does support this. He he is a Republican. But his remarks did contrast with something he said in 2020. That was when a bill was considered that would have put New College under the umbrella of the Florida State University. At that time, he was against that and had said that uh, New College was a beacon of shining success as an independent collegiate institution Sarasota. Right, so a bit of a different take some two, three years later. Uh, Kathy, what are the next steps for confirming Governor DeSantis's nominations to the Board of Trustees and what happens after that? 
Well, these appointments are subject to confirmation by the Florida Senate, which is meeting, of course, uh, for the upcoming session with Republican control of the Florida Senate. It's unlikely that anything will change, that these conservative board members will be voted in. Meantime, there is a board of trustee meeting of the current board, January 31st, on the new college campus. So I suspect these uh, protesters and people that are concerned about what they feel is a takeover will be there to uh, speak uh, against that. In the meantime, you know, conservatives are very happy about this. They think that it, this will help New College with their enrollment, and they say that a, a more core curriculum will be good for students. Kathy Carter has been covering the nomination of six conservative board members to the Board of Trustees of New College and the controversy surrounding that. Kathy, thank you so much for your reporting and for your time. Thanks for having me. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. <laughs>